started right on time. And we're starting in chapter 38 where God himself, as I said, is going to be answering Job, rebuking Job, judging the old man that is in us. Because, as I tell you every week, Job is you and me. And if we can see that, if we can understand that, and believe it, then we will get a lot out of this book. If you think this is a history lesson about a man who lived uh, before Moses even, then you're going to miss out on everything that's to be learned from the book of Job. Because what we are told by God, by Elihu, about Job is what God is telling us about ourselves. And we're just going to be covering the first seven verses. Now, I, I had uh, I had twice as much to be covered, and I realized that I wasn't going to get it in today, so I cut it in half, and I, I hope those of you who had printed it off perhaps already will bear with me when things like this happen. But we, uh, we'll get started and just read the verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now your loins like a man, for I will demand of you and answer you me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who stretched out stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now there's an awfully lot contained in the verses we've just read that uh, that has been used by the adversary to wrap around a lot of idols of the heart that have deceived millions of people. And we're going to try to let the words of God explain the words of God for us today. Through Elihu, God has revealed to us that uh, the judgment which is now in the house of God is being administered by his cloud of witnesses. By his clouds, he has made us to know him and his word. What he does with men, how he does, uh, does it all through his elect, whom he characterizes as clouds. Now, this is the previous chapter where Elihu is talking, and it brings brings us up to what we're, what God is about to t- say to Job. But let's just go back and look at chapter 37, verses 11 through 13, where Elihu says, Also by watering he wearies the thick cloud, he scatters the bright cloud, and it is turned round about by his counsels, that they may do whatever he commands them upon the face of the world in the earth. He causes it, his cloud, whether for correction or for his land, or for mercy. And then I brought in Hosea 12, verse 10. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and similitudes by the ministry of the prophets, his clouds. The New Testament witnesses to this principle by which God speaks to mankind. Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 11. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent, make all men see, to the intent that now, under the principalities and powers, 
in the heavens, the word places is not there, might be known by the church, by the clouds, by his witnesses, the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The apostles knew this because they knew the book of Job. They knew the scriptures. They knew what clouds mean to God in, in scripture. But just before our Lord was uh, apprehended to be crucified, he gave us this revelation. It's all being done through God's clouds, but who is actually running the show? And here it is, Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, to, to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. So the truth is that even though he works by the ministry of the prophets, by the church, it is still in the final analysis our Heavenly Father who must drag us to himself. And that's what the scriptures plainly state in John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw, the Greek is drag, drag him and I will raise him up at the last day. God has dragged Job uh, to himself and is dragging him to himself and is now about to reveal himself to Job. Verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now Elihu told Job earlier, previous chapter, verses 18 and 19, Have you with him spread out the sky which is strong? And as a molten looking glass, this is those clouds that he's talking about. And we don't we don't think of it like that, strong as a molten looking glass. But that's how God thinks of it, of the clouds. That's how he thinks of us. He, he uses us to show each other what's within us. We are, through God's word within us, giving that word to others, just holding a mirror up in front of them saying, hey, look, this is what you look like. This is what the scriptures say you are. You're not... The God that you think you are that can rise up into the heavens and sit on the throne of God and dispute with God and condemn him. You're actually just dirt. That's, that's what we are. These are the clouds. Verse 19, teach us. He's talking to Job. You know, oh, Job, just teach us. Tell us what we shall say to him. For we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness. Elihu is telling Job that, look, it doesn't matter how much you think of yourself, you're in the dark. So Elihu has prepared us to receive the rebukes of God himself. Here we are hearing from God himself for the first, and the first thing that God does is to confirm Elihu's words. Without knowledge, you know, darkened counsel without knowledge, is the very definition from a biblical point of view of the word darkness. We think we know God before we're truly introduced to him, via the trials of which this book of Job is a figure, our trials, and it's the in this state of thinking that we know God when we really do not that we are that we darken counsel by words without knowledge. It seems it would be impossible to admit to being confused and still be so certain of our own righteousness. But that's that's what we're learning. That's why we're here learning what we are. We are capable of such incredible contradictions, and we live them out. That's exactly what we all do. Here are Job's words to demonstrate how this, this actually happens within our marred condition. Job 10, 15. If I be wicked, woe unto me. That's not me, you know, of course, in Job's mind. And if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head. 
I'm full of confusion. Therefore, see you my affliction. Now that's Job speaking to God, confessing that he's confused. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Are God's words for you and me? For us. He asks us this even while we're still thinking like Job thinks. Now here are Job's own words which demonstrate how presumptuous we, you and I, presumptuously think even after admitting to being full of confusion and before we even begin to truly know God. This is Job 23 verses uh, 3 through 7. And now remember that Job has just confessed in chapter 10 that he's full of confusion. But listen to the certainty that he has in his own righteousness here in these verses. His, his willingness to confront his maker. And you say, how can you admit you're confused and still have such, such uh, audacity? Well, that's, that's, that's who we are. That's who we are. Verses 3 through 5 of chapter 23, or 3 through 7 of chapter 23. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Oh, that I might come even to his throne, his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. In my confusion, you know, I mean, it just, it seems incredible that we can do this, but this is who we are. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him. So he might, so I, so should I be delivered forever from my judge. Job is a figure of who we are. And he was so certain of his own righteousness that he truly believed that if he could only come to God's throne, then he could boldly talk with and dispute with God. We're full of confusion, for sure. You know, I mean, that, that just demonstrates it. How presumptuous of us to think that we could convince God that he was judging us wrongly and that he would put strength in us to continue to reprove, condemn with, and condemn him. That, that's what we're saying. We could just, if we could just get to God, we'd, we could show him a better way. In Job's estimation of God, he could dispute with God and show God Job's way. That's the better way. Our way is the better way. Now, how different is the reality? How unworthy we are to even be in God's presence is the reality of coming before him as this carnal-minded uh, enmity against God man that we are. The presence of God, the, the actual presence of God in our lives is the death of our old man. God's presence within us is the beginning of the dying of our self-righteous, carnal-minded man. Job has now to give an accounting of why he would ever think that God would do wrong to anyone. Job, the figure of who we are, is now in the presence of God, who heard all these words proceed out of Job's mouth and from Job's heart. Now, this is Job 19, verse, verses 6 through 8. God heard it. Elihu heard it. And now he's having to give an accounting. Here's what Job said. Know now that God has overthrown me and has compassed me with his net. Behold, I cry out of wrong, but I'm not heard. I cry aloud and there is no judgment. 
He has fenced up my ways that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. Well, you know, he's, he's right about one thing. God is working it all. But it does not benefit us. But we will do it. We will do it. To accuse God of doing anything wrong. We, we, we do it just as surely as we say, God, give us a break. When we do that, we're accusing him of being, putting too much on us. And yet we all do it. When we question his work in our lives, we're accusing him of doing wrong. And not just in his dealing, uh, and not being just in his dealings with us. I cry out of wrong, but there's no judgment demonstrates how we have condemned God to make ourselves righteous. Here we are, finally made away, aware uh, that we are in his very presence. Of course, we've been there all along, but he's revealing himself to us now. And in doing that, our old man begins to die daily and be crucified with our Lord. Now we know what King David finally came to know. Psalms 139 verses 2 through, through I'm going to be reading through uh, at least 10. He says, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You search out my path. Now notice that. I want to, I want to reiterate that. You understand my thought afar off. God knows our thoughts before we have them, is what he's saying. You know, Proverbs 16.1. The preparations of the heart in man and the entry tongue is from the Lord. You search out my path, my lying down, and uh, are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Jehovah, you know it all together. Yeah, he knows it because he put it there. You have beset me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. When God rebukes, God's rebukes begin, we only start to understand the extent of God's sovereignty. David continues, uh, this is actually uh, Solomon speaking, Proverbs 16.1, the preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And then uh, chapter 20 of Proverbs, verse 24, man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man understand his own way? It's, it's just not possible for us to know what tomorrow brings and what we're going to do because it's all God doing it. King David continues in Psalms 139, verse 7, Whither shall I go from your spirit? Or whither shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overwhelm me, and the light about me shall be shall be night, even in the darkness hide not, even the darkness hides not from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Now that's a profound statement. That's for God, not for you and me, but for God they're the same because He's working them both. He creates them both. Isaiah forty five seven. I create light and darkness. For you did form my inward parts. You did cover me in my mother's womb. 
I will give thanks unto you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and your soul, and my soul, that my soul knows right well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was made in the secret, in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Now I want to go back and put this verse 15 with uh, verse uh, 13. For you did form my inward parts, you did cover me in my mother's womb. He calls his mother's womb the lowest parts of the earth. And there is a good reason for that when you know who we are, who our mother is, and what, where we are when we are spiritually in her womb. Because we are in our mother who brings forth the man-child, who then flees into the wilderness. And God says through Hosea that his wife is a harlot. So we come out of a harlot. Hebrews, I mean Hebrews, Revelation 18, verse 4, you know, come out of her, my people. Uh, that's who we come out of, and that's why we are in the lowest parts of the earth, in the darkness, while we're being formed. Verse 16. Thine eyes did see my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written. In advance. Even the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. So God has a book, so to speak, spiritually speaking, in which every person who has ever lived has already been documented and placed there, and everything that will happen to them, whether they die as a fetus or live to be 120 years old, every day of their life is in that book. But God placed it within those with whom he is working to accept his sovereignty. So we, as Job in type, Acknowledge and even that even our trials are all his loving, chastening hand in our lives for our good. Psalms 107, verse 25, He commands and raises the stormy wind, which raises, lifts up the waves thereof. They mount up to heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. Now, while we're still in Babylon, we thought that we knew at least something about God. But when we finally come to begin to know him, we now begin to realize just how little we ever really knew of him and his ways. And as long as we're thinking we have free will, we don't know God at all. We don't know what's going on or what, what his plan is, or we just don't know anything. But only when we come to our wits end, then we begin to sense just how infinite our Lord is and how much we still must learn of him. Only then can we begin to hear his words to us. Job 38, verses 3 and 4. Gird up now your loins like a man, for I will demand of you and answer you me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Now, there's a lot of idols of the heart that uh, will tell you that mankind pre-existed. The whole of the Mormon religion believes it. The whole of uh, many universal salvation groups believe that we pre-existed and that there's a thing called a law of circularity where God just, I guess, cycles us from flesh to spirit. Uh, anyway, the, the doctrine is that we were spirit before we became flesh. And they call it the law of circularity. So, if we had pre-existed as spiritual bodies before 
being made out of the dust of the ground, then Job could easily have said, why, I was right there with you, Lord. I was your son who shouted for joy, because that's what the doctrine teaches. I was there and I shouted for joy when you laid the foundations of the world. But of course, Job was not there at all. That's the point in asking the question. So he must lay his hand upon his mouth. He didn't say, well, Lord, I was right there. He's ashamed to open his mouth now, now that he knows that he's just dust and that God is the one who made him and that he wasn't there. We've been taken out of the dust of the ground by our maker. He made us at that point. We didn't exist before that. So God can and does call us earth, earth, earth. He doesn't call us spirit, 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 or heaven, heaven, heaven. He calls us earth. And that's Jeremiah 22, 9. The point being that you and I were not even there when Christ laid the foundation for our lives. As we saw earlier, he specifically tells us that he had all of our days written in his book before there were any of them. There it is again, verse 16 of Psalms 139. And Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. He doesn't say that he took a spirit and put it in dust. It says he formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. A living soul is not an immortal soul, contrary to anything that you've heard in Babylon. We are not immortal. We are mortal, subject to death. And the breath of life in us is no different than the breath of life in Rover, our dog, or our cat. It's just the same life that God gives to animals, and for that matter, plants. They all receive their life from God, and when they die, he takes it back to himself and puts life somewhere else, but it's his life in us that he sustains. In him we live and move and have our being. So we simply were not spirit, first spiritual and then natural, and that's the point which is being specified and made clear in this verse. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty six, The truth of God's word. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. Afterward, that which is spiritual. If a body formed out of the dust of the ground has life breathed into it, what is that person? Here, according to God himself, is what we are. According to God, we are nothing more than beasts of the, uh, of the dust of the earth. Genesis 3.19 In the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. That's what we are. We're not spirit, we're flesh. We're dust of the ground. So that's how our, address, our maker addresses us. Jeremiah 22, verse 29, which I quoted earlier. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. And then Christ, speaking to Nicodemus, tells him, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh is flesh, and spirit is spirit. And the spiritual doesn't come first. The natural comes first, and afterward that which is spirit. We're not yet immortal. We're still merely dust of the ground. And without a resurrection from among the dead, we will perish. 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16. <clears throat> Which in his times he shall show, who is that blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. Those are titles for Christ. Who at this time only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. No man has 
obtained immortality yet. There has to be a resurrection for that to happen. Because men die. Christ died, but he was raised by his father first. He's the barley wave sheaf 50 days before the Pentecost offering is even made. <clears throat> Who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. Whom no man has seen nor can see. To whom be honoring power everlasting. Amen. Now Christ, of course, did say, he that has seen me has seen my Father. And of course, we do see Christ and we see his Father in Christ. But that's not a man. That's not what is called a man. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 and 18. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You're yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ. Asleep means not conscious. Are perished. Now there are those who get technical and say, oh, but you have a subconscious while you say, well, <laughs> you missed the whole point. You're perished. You're perished. People that are perished don't have thoughts. At the, rec at the resurrection, we will put on immortality, but immortality is not innate to any beast in whose nostrils is the breath of life. If we're already immortal souls, then we would not need to put on immortality. And it would not be said that only Christ, besides his Father, has immortality. But this is what we are plainly told, and it is qualified by telling us that we have no preeminence above a beast. And that's in Ecclesiastes 18, verse, uh, 3, verses 18 through 20. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. We're just beasts. Just animals. That are happen to be being made in the image of God. And will one day be conformed to the image of his son. But it's a process that we're going through. And the flesh that we live in is simply a part of that process. For that which befalls the sons of men. Verse 19 befalls beasts. Everyone, even one thing befalls them. As the one dies, so dies the other. Yes, they all have one breath. The word breath there is spirit, ruach, so that a man has no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. And then 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 and 54. For this corruptible, this flesh and blood, must put on incorruption, and this mortal subject to death, corruptible body, must put on immortality. When will that happen? So when this corruption, corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. We have no preeminence above beasts, and yet we think we can dispute with God. Job 23, verse 7 again, there, there the righteous might dispute with him. So should I be delivered from my, uh, forever from my judge. We all come to rue the day when we have had such presumptuous inward thoughts against our loving Heavenly Father. And when we all have them. God asks us to consider who it was that decided just how large this earth should be. 
Who holds the earth in its place? Who made the earth? Who made whom? Remember, the earth is the biblical symbol for who we are, what we are, the dust that we are. God decides just how big and powerful we are. He decides who made us and who didn't. You know, he wants us to realize that it's he who holds the earth in its place, holds us where we are. The point God is making is that Job and you were not even around. We were nowhere to be found when God laid the foundations of the earth and created us. And he continues to drive that point home. Verses 5 and 6. Who, who, laid the found, the, who laid the measures thereof, if you know? Who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Now these questions are being asked us by our God to draw our attention to who made whom. In doing that, we're forced to take notice of the absolute miracles we live with every day, which we take for granted on a daily basis. We observe the miraculous order of God's universe and his sovereign working in our lives and in the lives of all of his creation on this planet. But because it's so common to see the sun rise and see a baby born and see life all around us, we take these everyday miracles for granted. Whereupon are the foundations of this planet Earth fastened? Is just another way of saying, how does life come into being? How, how, what, what's keeping us alive? What is it that's, why are we alive? Why aren't we a rock instead of capable of thinking and moving and getting around? That, that's, that's what, whereupon are the foundations of this planet Earth fastened uh, means. Who laid the cornerstone thereof? Who created whom? Out of the dust of the ground. Now look what he says next. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now there is a real revelation in that verse. The morning stars and the sons of God in this verse refer to the principalities and powers of the heavens which were created before Adam and Eve. They were created, and we're going to see this, on the fourth and fifth days in type and shadow. Because they're typified by the stars on day four and the fowls of the heaven on day five. The two days preceding Adam. You say, Mike, it didn't say anything about the creation of the heavenly hosts in on days four and five. Oh, well, you know, for those who don't have eyes to see it, that's true. But for those who do, you will see that we're being told that they were created then so that they could shout for joy when God brought mankind on the scene. Both of those are biblical figures of angelic spirits. Both the stars on day four and the fowls of the heaven on day five were created on the two days preceding Adam's creation on the sixth day, along with all the other beasts. <clears throat> Being created on the sixth day forever associates carnal man and all beasts with the number six. Now, let's look at Exodus 20 verse 11 and we'll get the we'll get the revelation that the heavenly hosts were created 
at that time. Here it is, Exodus 20, verse 11. In six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that in them is, all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Now let's look at Revelation 13, 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of mankind. That's what it ought to read. There is no article, amen. That's not there. It's the number of anthropos. Mankind. And his number is 603 score and 6. In other words, 666. All that in them is, there in Exodus 20 verse 11, certainly would include all the spiritual hosts of heaven, who we are told, plainly in the scriptures, are typified by morning stars, sons of God, who shouted for joy when God laid the cornerstone upon which he created mankind. But where in scripture is the spirit realm referred to as the sons of God? The angelic spirits are called sons of God inasmuch as God is called the father of spirits. And that's in Hebrews 12, 9. Furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh. There it is. We're sons of our fathers, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? God is the Father of all spirits. All things were created in those six days. Everything in heaven and in the earth and in the sea and all that in them is. The stars, the figures of the angelic host, were created on the fourth day. Genesis 1, 14 through 19. God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now, you know, when you understand what light is and what darkness is, then you know that we're being told right here what was created. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven. To give light upon the earth. Light is knowledge. Knowledge is given to us by God's clouds. By his light. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day. And the lesser night light to rule the night. He made light and he made darkness. And then it concludes there in verse 16. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And to rule over the day and over the night. And to provide the light and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. There you have it. Stars created on the fourth day. Physical earth is merely the foundation for spiritual earth. Mankind for whom God created the physical earth and out of which he formed mankind on the sixth day as the crown of his temporal, physical creation. Now, notice how the scriptures use heavenly bodies as types of his creation here on the earth. Genesis 37, verses 9 and 10. Now, now notice this. This is a dream that Joseph had, and he's telling it to his father and his brothers. His mother's already dead, but he has this dream. He dreamed yet another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon And the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brothers. 
And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves before down before you to the earth? So Jacob makes it clear there that the stars symbolized Joseph's brothers. That was clear from his previous dream of the sheaves that bowed down before him. His eleven sheaves bowed before him, before his sheep. The stars symbolized Joseph's brothers. The sun symbolized his father. And the moon symbolized Joseph's mother. Mothers are the biblical symbol of the church of God. Women. Which church is also called the mother, brothers, and sisters. And the body and the wife of Christ. All of those things. Matthew 12 verses 46 through 50. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood without, desiring to speak with him. The house was so crowded they couldn't get in. Then one said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers stand without, desiring to speak with you. But he answered and said to them that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. All of those. All of those are you and me, whether we're male or female. We are Christ's brother, we're his sister, and we're his mother. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So there we are. We're not a brother there. We're, we're a chaste virgin. Espoused to one husband. First Corinthians, I mean in Colossians 1 to 24. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of the Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. There were his body. Malachi 4 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness, and that's spelled right, S-U-N, arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Christ is called the Son, S-U-N, of Righteousness, the heavenly body. Luke twenty-one twenty-five. Now, pay close attention to this verse, because this is uh, the book of Job in one verse, so to speak. And there shall be signs in the sun, that's, that's Christ, who was crucified for us, and in the moon, his church, the woman who brings forth the man-child, and, and in the stars, upon the, and upon the earth. Now the stars, of course, are our are fellow men who are in the church, and who don't yet know Christ necessarily, but they're still stars. Uh, and upon the earth, distress of nations, and this is the earth is us, and the, the, this is a type of the trials of Job, with perplexity, the confusion that Job mentions in chapter 10, verse 15, and the sea and the waves roaring. That is all that takes place in our flesh. Our flesh is the sea and the waves roaring, bringing us to our wit's end. What goes on in our physical flesh is what brings us to our wit's end. Now look at Revelation 1.20. The mystery of the seven stars, 
which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. Now we're told in Revelation 12 that it's a woman who brings forth the man-child who's ruled the nations with a rod of iron. 12.5, she brought forth the man-child who was ruled all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You know, that that's so hard to understand when you don't know when you don't know. It sounds like it's talking about Christ. And indeed it is, but it's talking about his Christ who has promised to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And uh, that, of course, is the body which is his church. So, according to Colossians 1.24. So, obviously, the man-child and he that overcomes in the church is one and the same as the church which is his body. It's all the same. Revelation 2 verses 26 through 29. To him that overcomes, this is written to the churches, and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter are broken in shivers, as I also have received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The physical stars which God has set in the firmament of heaven are the figures of the spiritual, of the doctrinal spirits which occupy the heavens of our hearts and minds. Luke 21.25 is the perfect spiritual description of God's judgments, which we all, as Job, must endure before we are given to know God and his Son. That's why I say Luke 21 through 25 is just as the book of Job in one verse. Now, next week, if the Lord wills, we'll continue to hear our Lord's words to us through his judgment of Job as the type of our old man. 